Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal here is to find the exceptional folks in every field and ask them questions and hopefully get them to say, that's a good question, because it means I've gotten to some uh, information they have in their brains that maybe they haven't spoken about before. Today I have uh, Philip Zamore. He's the chair and professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. We're going to be talking about uh, a big-time landmark FDA approval that uh, allows gene silencing. It's a new method that he's been working on. So, Philip, thanks for coming. You're welcome. Yeah, what, what, is, what is gene silencing, first of all? Uh, gene silencing, or as it's often called, RNA interference or RNAi, uh, is a way of destroying messenger RNAs from a gene so that the protein product can't be made. So in its simplest form, it's um, a kind of off switch that you can um, add to cells to turn off a disease gene, for example. Um, and um, unlike other uh, mechanisms that, that attempt to do that, that same thing, um, it acts uh, using a natural cellular pathway, which is why it works so well. Where does it halt the process? Is it uh, a gene is transcribed, but uh, then it cannot be made into the constituent protein? Or does it prevent like, uh, like epigenetic marks, let's say, a gene being um, you know, looked at and transcribed in the first place? Uh, no. So the gene's transcribed, um, but, but then um, something called a small interfering RNA um, programs a natural enzyme called Argonaut 2 or AGO2, A-G-O, uh, to actually make a single scissors-like cut in the messenger RNA, which ultimately leads to its destruction. But um, even that one cut prevents the protein from being made. So what happens to the transcribed gene? Where does it go? Does it get absorbed by the cell, or does it migrate to somewhere? Or what happens? No, it, it, it gets broken down into uh, its uh, individual nucleotide parts and just recycled by the cell. Um, uh, basically... The, the process of destroying it is entirely natural. The, the only thing that is new is the, the sequence of the sRNA targets uh, an RNA that normally would be stable to be destroyed by the natural pathway. So I've heard of uh, a lot of places doing gene knockouts. Um, is this uh, perhaps a superior method to doing a gene knockout because you could leave the genome intact but uh, still silence the genes you want to silence? Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I think you can divide the, the, the world's diseases into two broad categories. One is um, an inborn error where there's a mutation in the genome and you want to uh, turn off the gene forever. Uh, and then the other is where you want to, uh, for example, lower the amount of gene product instead of turning it off completely. Uh, so a knockout can only do the first kind. Uh, and the other thing about a knockout is uh, if it has side effects, you can't reverse them. So once you've done a knockout, you can never go back. 
which makes it, uh, I think, a really good tool for studying uh, model organisms in the lab, but maybe not yet mature enough for use in humans. Whereas uh, RNAi is like a drug. If you stop taking it, uh, you stop its effects. Yeah, that's really interesting. So this could be cell type specific, it's dose specific, it has a timeline, it could probably be time release. I mean, you can modulate a lot of effects with it. That's, that's exactly right. And um, the, the drugs, there are two drugs on the market now that use this mechanism, two siRNA drugs. Um, and what's, what's common in both cases is that um, the product, th that the gene product, the protein that causes the disease is made in the liver. So right now, uh, uh, you, can, you can direct siRNAs to the liver right now uh, very efficiently. That technology has uh, really become a mature uh, platform so that once you pick a disease gene that's made by the liver that you want to turn down or um, almost off, uh, there's a clear drug development path to do that. For places in the body other than the liver, the technology is uh, still being developed. Um, I think the next one you'll see is probably uh, in, in the central nervous system. Um, maybe after that, uh, you might see the technology being used actually in the placenta for diseases like preeclampsia. Um, so the, the two sides of, of the, the drug development um, strategy are, first of all, to make the drug safe and effective, but also make it get to the right tissue. And right now, the only commercial drugs um, that are based on siRNAs are those that, that uh, go to the liver uh, and turn off a gene, gene product production there. Why is the liver uh, particularly amenable to, to these kind of drugs? Uh, you know, I, I think for two reasons. Um, the, the first is just historical in that um, strategies for delivering any kind of oligonucleotide to the liver were, have been worked on the longest. And so um, sort of luck was on, on the side of getting that to work well first. Um, but the second is there's a lot of blood flow through the liver. Uh, so so you, can, you, can, you, know, you know that by uh, putting the drug into a human being either under the skin, which is called subcutaneously, or into the bloodstream uh, by infusion, uh, that, that it'll go to the liver. So the question then is, having gone to the liver and the blood, will it get taken up by the hepatocytes? And the trick there is uh, specific sugars have actually been attached to the siRNA to um, enable them to bind a receptor on the surface of hepatocytes. So, all right, how would this be tailored then to other uh, cell types? Like what's the important criteria that uh, this drug will go into the right cells, the right cell type. You know, yes, do you have to, uh, how do you account for, I guess, the membrane particulars, or how yeah. do you know how this will work? So, so what people are have been looking for are uh, ligands, like the, the sugars that are used to deliver to the liver, uh, that they can attach to sRNAs that'll cause them to accumulate in other tissues. And typically those strategies involve uh, a combination of uh, trying different ligands that are known to buy, uh, bind to um, proteins that, are, that have been well studied that are on the surfaces of specific cell types uh, and, and a lot of luck. You know, uh, uh, for a long time, uh, this Galnac technology, this, this sugar that sends it to the liver, 
didn't seem like it was working. And ultimately, it was a matter of tweaking it, to, and, uh, and then it became very effective. So how did you discover this in the first place? What was it? How did you get this idea, and how did you figure this out? Yeah, so um, so I'm a biologist, and uh, I, I, I have not uh, really ever set out to develop technology, per se, uh, or drug therapies. But... Um, like many biologists of my generation, my eyes are open and I'm looking to see what, what discoveries we make about nature might have practical use. So back in uh, 1999, uh, 2000, my colleagues and I, uh, Tom Tushel, Dave Bartell, and Phil Sharp, uh, started to study a process called RNAi that had been described in um, the nematode C. elegans. And uh, when we, we figured out how to study it biochemically in, in fruit flies, uh, we discovered that the sort of active ingredient in the pathway were these little tiny RNAs called small interfering RNAs or siRNAs. And we thought, well, if, it's, if these are found in nematodes, and uh, that we, we knew at the time they were found in plants, and they're found in fruit flies, we thought, because of the way evolution works, they had to be present in humans doing the same thing. And so we got the idea to start a company, um, Alnylam, uh, that uh, would, would try to use our discoveries in fruit flies initially uh, to develop drugs for use in humans uh, based on the same mechanism. And, and along that path, while we were starting the company, Tom Tushel's lab, uh, he had then moved to Germany, uh, discovered that you could actually make these siRNAs in the lab and get them into cells and culture. So between those two discoveries, uh, the one in fruit flies and the one in uh, immortal cultured human cells in a dish, uh, it looked pretty promising. And, and so we were young and, and naive and, and a little bit arrogant. And we started this company and we thought it'll just be a couple of years uh, and uh, we'll get this to, the company will get into work in, in humans. Well, it took 14 years, uh, and and you know the 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 journey uh, I think was very similar to other drugs that were based on biological uh, discoveries, um, just about the same time scale. But we were young enough that we thought it would be different for us, and it wasn't. So, at what point um, would gene knockouts be a, a thing of the past, and this would be the preferred method of uh, experimentation? Could you repeat that? At what point do you think that this will be robust enough where gene knockouts will be a thing of the past and this will be the preferred method instead? Uh, no, I don't think this will ever replace gene knockouts. That, uh, you know, in terms of experiments rather than therapies, they, they serve very different purposes. So there are two kinds of gene knockouts, uh, regular knockouts and conditional knockouts. So a regular knockout removes the gene from every cell in the body. Um, Often that is, is lethal, and so you can't really study it. Uh, conditional knockouts allow you to remove the gene from a particular cell lineage. Um, often that, that allows you to study the, the function of the gene, but, but more often than not, again, uh, removing the gene completely can kill the cells that you want to study. And so at that point, people turn to RNAi, and instead of completely removing the gene, they reduce the amount of the gene product by enough to see its effect, but without killing the cells. 
So, so from an experimental standpoint, they're extremely complementary techniques. But why would this not be able to uh, replace it? It seems like the dials on this are a lot more fine than the dials on any type of G knockout. I, well, first of all, I would say because often uh, you, you, you find the opposite case uh, where reducing the level to small amounts still is enough for the cell to be fine, in which case a knockout is necessary. Um, and also I, because it, knockouts versus uh, RNAi, the difference tells you something. So in general, you like to do both. One is what happens is answers to the question, what happens if you didn't have this protein at all? And the other is what happens if you don't have enough of the protein? So, you know, for example, there are cancers where okay. tumor suppressors simply are not made at all. So if you want to understand those, you need to knock out the tumor suppressor. Hmm. Okay. I just didn't know if you can get it to such a low level that it approximates a knockout and therefore you wouldn't need a knockout. There are cases where that's possible, but in general, if you can get it below say 10 or 20% of the original level, uh, you're doing really well. And Are there methods to, um, to upregulate genes selectively, or is this a method now where you can do that, where you couldn't before? Um, no, I would say, I would say that, that you can't directly turn a gene up using this strategy, but because genes are part of larger regulatory networks, um, you can often target a repressor of a gene, which will allow the downstream gene uh, to have increased expression. And uh, simil similarly, um, Alnylam has been developing sRNA therapies for hemophilia in which um, an inhibitor of clotting is actually reduced, um, allowing the clotting pathway to be more sensitive and regain function. Does this uh, appear to affect any um, you know, methylation or epigenetic marks? So far in, in, in mammals, no. Um, that's too bad. Well, it depends, well, maybe. It depends on your perspective. <laughs> if you're developing a drug and it does that, uh, it it's actually comes under a much higher level of regulatory scrutiny and uh, really? it needs a much uh, more demanding safety study. Anything that changes huh. uh, something in the, the DNA or chromatin uh, it gets treated uh, very differently from something that acts just in the cytoplasm to, to chew up an RNA. Oh, is there a name for those different designations? Um, yes. Hey, are, there any, are there any drugs that do appear to remove epigenetic marks? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are um, HDAC inhibitors, for example, that do mm -hmm. that. Um, but generally, those are, are anti-cancer drugs. Um, people have certainly tried um, drugs like that uh, historically for sickle cell anemia to try to remove the repressive methyl marks from uh, the DNA of the fetal hemoglobin gene. Um, it hasn't been, I think, a, a very effective strategy. And I think if you were to develop something like that today, um, the, the level of regulatory scrutiny would be pretty high to make sure that it was doing that only in erythrocytes and not in other cells. Do you think that this could be used um, to prevent bacteria from infecting us or to prevent, you know, as an antiviral somehow? Or if a, if a cell gets infected by a virus, could it be uh, a way to block the action of the construction of more virions? Um, so to take your first question, can it be used as an antibacterial? Probably not. 
as an antiviral, absolutely. And uh, I, I have a colleague who right now is working literally round the clock with her lab to try to develop siRNA antivirals for COVID-19. Um, and if you were um, a member of the majority of animals on the planet instead of a member of this tiny little minority of mammals, you would routinely use siRNAs as an antiviral. So in, in arthropods uh, and nematodes, uh, the siRNA pathway is one of the um, main defenses against viruses. So every beetle, that's, that's a good sign. every butterfly, uh, you know, every fruit fly, they're all using this pathway to fight viruses. Where does their siRNA material come from? I guess it must be made endogenously, obviously, but where does it come from? Right. So um, in ter terms of viruses, uh, many viruses are, are made of RNA. So they store their genetic material in RNA, sometimes double-stranded RNA, sometimes single-stranded RNA. But even when they're single-stranded, they have to go through a double-stranded intermediate. And naturally, cells chop up double-stranded RNA to make siRNA. So in a, you know, in a beetle, it gets infected by a virus. Um, what material is the beetle using? Is that known to create these sRNAs to block the viral action? Yeah, it actually um, uses an enzyme called DICER that chops up the double-stranded RNA genome of the virus and directly makes the sRNAs that way. So, oh. so in a way, if you think about the parallel to our antibody immune system, uh, our, our, the, the, the big trick in antibodies and, and in T-cell receptors is that the presence of something like a protein, for example, on the surface of a pathogen or made by a virus uh, triggers the, a specific immune response against that exact protein, right? That's the basis of vaccines to, to basically produce a lasting memory of how to make antibodies for the rest of your life against that uh, feature of the pathogen. So the RNAi system is analogous in that it takes the genetic material of a virus and uses it directly to make siRNAs. So when the virus isn't there, it doesn't make the siRNAs. And when the virus gets there, it recognizes the fact that it's double-stranded RNA, which is something unusual in a cell, and it chops it up into siRNAs that then can be used to destroy the messenger RNAs that the virus makes and the genomic RNA. That's really interesting. That's amazing. I wonder why uh, our cells don't do that. Or maybe they do, just not strongly enough. Or so they they there are there are sort of two main pathways that that accomplish these um, conversions of double-stranded RNA into smaller RNAs. Uh, one is called the microRNA pathway, and one is called the siRNA pathway. And they both use versions of the enzyme DICER in the antiviral RNAi pathway. DICER is extremely efficient. And in the microRNA pathway, it's a much more tame enzyme. And so in mammals, we use this uh, sort of wimpier version of DICER to, to make uh, small, molecule, uh, small RNAs called microRNAs that regulate our own genes, but we don't normally use it as an antiviral. Now, now we can take advantage of that pathway with synthetic sRNA drugs, but um, the, the antiviral pathway uh, using this really efficient version of DICER was, was lost somewhere uh, on the way to the, the lineage of mammals, um, but it's, it was retained in arthropods. So 
lobsters and flies and beetles. Hmm. Interesting. Um, are we able to look for the presence of even small amounts of this sRNA in our own cells when uh, you know we get a viral infection? Do you think it's there at all or it's not there at all? Um, I don't think it's there at all. Interesting. But, um, but yeah. viruses do actually exploit that to make their own microRNA. Oh, tell me a little bit about that. What you... so, so in addition to all the microRNAs we make to normally regulate our genes, there are a few viruses like uh, hepatitis B virus uh, that um, actually make their own microRNAs that turn off our mRNAs in order to allow the virus to grow. So it, it, the virus actually exploits our own pathway to turn back on us. So kind of the opposite huh. of, of what the RNAi pathway is doing normally. You mean, is the virus uh, starting up this pathway somehow to block the, um, the production of some of the, um, the proteins that we would need or ones that would be antithetical to the virus? Yes, exactly. Huh, that's crazy. So where, again, what is the origin of the creation of these, uh, these sRNAs, you know, in, in you said in arthropods, it's, it's there, but uh, the cell recognizes this, uh, you know, this double-stranded RNA, but um, I don't know, is there more known about the recognition of it and literally what the start of this whole process is and what are the substances that literally start the process? Yeah, the I mean... The creation of the uh, sRNA itself? So, so the, the, last, the last common ancestor of plants, animals, and fungi had this pathway, and used double-stranded RNA generated either by viruses or by the cell itself to make sRNAs. And then in plants, uh, it, it, it was retained as an antiviral. Uh, and then in um, animals, uh, many of the lineages like arthropods and nematodes uh, retained it, uh, but on the way to mammals, it was lost. And the the idea of using double-stranded RNA as the signal to make sRNAs um, is really clever. And it was Craig Mello and Andy Fire who won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of double-stranded RNA as the trigger of RNAi. And by using double-stranded RNA, the, the, the cell can separate normal cellular RNA, which is very rarely double-stranded, from viral RNA. Uh, but it can also specifically make double-stranded RNAs that will be recognized in a similar way and either make sRNAs or microRNAs that can do cellular function. So in, in, in plants, uh, sRNAs um, actually can direct epigenetic marks uh, that regulate genes in the nucleus. Uh, same in fungi. Um, in, in animals, there are very few examples of that because uh, there are other pathways that um, have replaced that, that RNA-guided strategy. Um, okay. There's one related pathway that my lab has worked on for a long time called the pyRNA pathway that uses many of the same proteins but doesn't begin with double-stranded RNA that um, actually can change epigenetic marks, including uh, DNA methylation in, in mammals and um, uh, chromatin methylation in in uh, arthropods. And, and that pathway protects uh, our germ cells from transposons. Can we tell, for instance, when someone, uh, you know, has a viral infection, like, you know, for instance, now with COVID, whether the virus is activating these, uh, these sRNA type elements? 
and how um, would we use that information if we did know to counteract it? Yeah, I mean, my bet is they're not because of the way mammalian biology works, but if they were, the way to do it is to get samples of the infected cells, and we use a technique called high-throughput sequencing to specifically sequence millions upon millions of the small RNAs in the cell. And, and that will reveal whether or not any are being made from the virus. So what do you think is going to be the, um, you know, back to the technology, what, what's going to be the near-term future in terms of ability? You said uh, in the liver, uh, this seems to work pretty well. You know, small molecule drugs that can accomplish this uh, RNA interference. Um, what, what's next or what's coming soon? Yeah, so I think the most exciting thing that's just on the horizon, um, I'm not quite sure how the, the pandemic has slowed it down, if at all. But before the pandemic, I would have predicted you'd see approval this year is of an sRNA drug that blocks a, a, um, the production of a protein in the cholesterol biosynthesis pathway and uh, is likely to be a replacement for statin. Uh, so, so, and, and, and the two really exciting things about that drug are that it, it appears to have, um, at least in clinical trials, which were done with thousands of people, um, a much more favorable side effect profile. So it's, 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 it has fewer side effects. And um, the way the, the sRNA drug was designed, it's incredibly stable. And so you would only need to receive it twice a year, cool. which is a huge advantage for people with high cholesterol because forgetting to take a daily medicine is one of the main reasons why statins don't work as well as people had hoped. Oh, wow. So if you could just go to CVS and they would give you an injection that felt not so terribly different from a flu shot uh, twice a year, um, I think, you know, people's cholesterol would be under much better control. So yeah, that would be I think that, so that's the near term. I think the long term is to develop sRNAs that can be injected into the nervous system uh, maybe twice a year, uh, that would allow you to treat diseases like Huntington's disease. And there's a lot of work being done both in companies and in academic research labs to, to try to bring that about. Okay. Hmm. Well, very good. Uh, Philip, what's the best way for people to find out more about this, uh, this phenomenon and to read some of the work that you put out there? Uh, well, all of, all of the work that I've done is available at uh, either my Google Scholar uh, homepage. You just search for me by my first initial and my last name. Uh, Nature has had over the years a number of really great uh, articles about the field. Um, and I think they now have uh, a permanent uh, set of pieces for the sort of scientifically literate layperson on their website. Uh, and if you want to know more about um, drug development in the field, uh, going to any of the, the websites of the companies that, that try to develop these, these compounds like L-Nylum or Dicerna, uh, there's often a ton of, of information for patients. Okay. Well, very good. So those, any other ways to follow up or those are the best? Um, I think, you know, truthfully, Google is not a bad way. You'll get, you'll get uh, if you just search uh, SIRNA, uh, you will get a lot of information and you just look for reputable sources like um, universities, websites, or 
you know, the big scientific uh, magazine, Scientific American, things like that. Oh, very good. Well, Philip, thank you for coming. And it's a uh, really interesting work that you're doing. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.